Welcome to the program, Novel DOAC Reversal Strategies Update on Best Practices. This program is supported by an educational grant from Portola Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, and HMT Company. We realize that there are many webcasts to choose from in your lifelong learning pathway, and we appreciate you joining us today. My name is Mark Munger. I'm a professor of pharmacotherapy with a joint appointment with the Department of Internal Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the University of Utah. It will be my pleasure to share with you this presentation today. I have no financial relationships associated with the subject matter of this presentation. The learning objectives that I would like to provide you are the following. First, to identify current gaps in the management of DOAC-related major bleeding events, I will provide an overview of thrombosis as a major healthcare crisis. Number two, describe mechanisms of action, safety, and efficacy data for currently approved DOAC reversal agents. Three, we will then use this background to discuss care strategies that can be used to facilitate a multidisciplinary approach to patients at risk for DOAC-related bleeding. Finally, we will briefly discuss formulary and policy considerations surrounding DOAC reversal agents. We will begin by identifying gaps in the management of DOAC-related major bleeding events. Thrombosis is a major public health crisis as one in four persons worldwide dies of conditions caused by thrombosis. It also leads to excessive disability economic toll, and as we will discuss later, exactly psychological and social burden on the person and the social network around the person suffering from thrombosis. Anticoagulant therapy is a mainstay of treatment of thrombotic-related conditions. Therefore, it is important to recognize an ideal anticoagulant and determine whether we have reached that level of anticoagulant development. There are three mainstays development of an ideal anticoagulant. The first are pharmacokinetic characteristics, an oral fixed dosage that has a rapid onset and rapid offset, meaning predictable pharmacokinetics. Additionally, in these characteristics is the important note that there is no need for renal or hepatic adjustment. Finally, a drug with low propensity for drug and food interactions. The second characteristic is pharmacodynamic. We, here we look for a product with a wide therapeutic window. The third characteristic is the availability of an antidote to reverse the effects of the anticoagulant. And fourth characteristic is the affordability of the agent. Does an ideal anticoagulant exist? This slide depicts factor 2A and factor 10A inhibitors currently available in the U.S. They form a therapeutic armamentarium along with warfarin that allows us to prevent and treat venous thromboembolism and prevent stroke and systemic embolism in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. There are pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic differences between these agents that are important in choosing a direct oral anticoagulant or DOAC. Bioavailability of these agents differs substantially and should be recognized. Half-life is a relatively consistent between the DOACs at approximately 8 to 15 hours. However, bitrixaban has a half-life of approximately 24 hours. Drug interactions exist for all the DOACs. The bigatron, adoxaban, and bitrixaban are substrates for the efflux transporter P-glycoprotein, and these drugs interact with P-glycoprotein inhibitors and inducers, which can increase the systemic exposure and the risk of bleeding. Rivaroxaban and apixaban are substrates for P-glycoprotein and the cytochrome P450 enzyme 3A4. Concomitant use of these agents can increase systemic exposure to each of these agents, again increasing the risk of bleeding. If a potential drug interaction is present with a DOAC, the clinician should consider lowering the dose or selecting an alternative agent such as low molecular weight heparin because there is limited data on how to adjust dosing in drug-drug interactions with DOACs. Another important consideration is protein binding. The protein binding of the Bicatron is low, making it the only DOAC that is dialyzable. Finally, four of the five agents are eliminated by the kidneys and can accumulate in patients with renal impairment. 
Patrixaban has limited renal elimination and dosing adjustments are not necessary until the creatinine clearance is reduced between 15 mLs to 30 mLs per minute. It should be recognized that as creatinine clearance decreases or renal function declines, the potential for DOAC accumulation increases as does the potential for bleeding complications. The magnitude of this effect is largest for the bigotron and smallest for apixaban and batrixaban. DOACs are approaching an ideal anticoagulant with the development of reversal agents. I provide you a comparison of agents based on special instructions, pre-procedure dosing, dietary considerations, and cost on this slide. I would point out to you the importance of invasive procedure management of DOACs. For patients with low to moderate risk of recurrent VTE who are scheduled for an invasive procedure, stopping the DOAC anywhere from five to six days to 72 hours before the procedure is recommended. But it should be noted that there is a very low certainty in the evidence about these recommendations. Before selecting appropriate anticoagulant therapy for a thrombotic condition, understanding risk factors for bleeding with obtaining a comprehensive history of the patient is important. There are several factor categories we should consider to determine which anticoagulant is appropriate. The first is patient demographics. This would include female sex, advanced age, low body weight, impaired organ function, and genetic predisposition for bleeding risk. Secondly, are concomitant diseases. History of a CVA or bleed, History of a recent fall or trauma, this would be an elevated risk of falling or trauma. Ethanol abuse, uncontrolled hypertension, diabetes mellitus, anemia, thrombocytopenia, pancytopenia, malignancy, rheumatic heart disease are all risk factors. Third, concomitant drugs. Questioning a patient about past excessive anticoagulation and current use of antiplatelets, non-steroidals, SSRIs, SNRIs, as well as exposure and outcome of thrombolytics is important. Other risk factors include a history of non-adherence and invasive procedure scheduling. Assessment of bleeding potential for each patient should be undertaken before a prescription is written or the first dose administered. If these risk factors are present, then a team consultation should take place regarding addressing whether the risk factor can be eliminated or minimized the choice of the anticoagulant, the dose, the dosing interval, and social factors such as transportation to a healthcare facility and social support if the bleed occurs, and finally determining the potential for adherence to the regimen. DOACs are associated with a high cost and prolonged hospital stays. These poor outcomes are related to the potential for an intracranial hemorrhage, bleeding at a critical site such as the eye, pericardial sac surrounding the heart, intraspinal or intraarticular joint space, bleeding from major trauma, or a major bleed with hemodynamic instability from either a GI or GU tract or ret retroperitoneal bleed. Recognizing the factor 10A inhibitor bleeds occur, the top 20% of bleed-associated length of stay and costs are listed. The average length of stay is between 10 and 17 days, with a very high cost burden averaging between 59,000 and 153,000 per event. After initiating an oral anticoagulant, the next step is the monitoring response. For, for patients receiving DOAC therapy, most guidelines do not support measurement of DOAC anticoagulant effect, nor do they support measurement during a bleeding episode due to a very low uncertainty in the evidence about the effects of the measurement. Nonetheless, DOAC anticoagulant activity using a variety of tests which are listed for you on this slide, including activated partial thromboplastin time, anti-factor 10A concentrations, and thrombin time. Understanding that no studies to date have a primary objective of evaluating the impact of measurement DOAC anticoagulant activity or have reported a direct comparison of outcomes for patients who did versus those who did not receive DOAC anticoagulant effect measurements. There's a critical need to develop validated specific DOAC effect tests, especially those that can be formed, performed rapidly and ideally as point-of-care tests. These tests then need to be validated in patients who are actively bleeding, and finally, these tests should be assessed for cost-effectiveness, 
susceptibility and feasibility of implementation during a bleeding management episode. However, if you have to use a test for a measurement or monitoring, the following are the best tests to use. For dabigatron, a Karen or thrombin test are the best, but do not use prothrombin time or activate partial thromboplastin time. For factor 10A inhibitors, the best anti-10A test is the best, but not prothrombin time or the activated partial thromboplastin time. Please remember that DOACs do not have an FDA-approved calibrations or methods for quantifying anticoagulation. It's best to always rely on the patient clinical presentation as your best guide. When a patient presents with a potential bleed and is on a DOAC, assessment of bleeding severity is recommended prior to instituting therapy, especially a specific antidote. First, assessment of hemodynamic stability should be undertaken, including blood pressure, heart rate, pulmonary auscultation, assessment of peripheral perfusion, urine output, level of consciousness, and the presence of chest pain. Next, based on the presence of hemodynamic instability, it may be possible for the patient to handle the bleed for at least one half-life of the factor 10A inhibitor. If the answer to this question is yes, then general supportive measures should be instituted. If not, then neutralization of the anticoagulant should be started. Let's move to objective number two, which is to describe the mechanism of action and safety and efficacy data for currently approved reversal agents. There still remains meager evidence from peer-reviewed literature, so most clinicians are forced to rely on their own personal experience with bleeding from DOACs, which is also very limited. However, supportive care is first and foremost for patients who present with bleeding or the need for emergent surgery. Fluid resuscitation with 0.9% normal saline or lactated ringers followed by dextran or albumin should be instituted immediately. Other support should include mechanical compression of the site of bleeding, if applicable. The oral anticoagulant should be discontinued. Surgical hemostasis with via electrical tissue cauterization, vessel ligation, or application of hemostatic agents can be used, again, if applicable to the patient's condition. Always maintain renal function. Finally, blood product transfusion should be at the ready. It's estimated that one-third to one-half of critically ill patients receive red blood cell transfusions with the likelihood of transfusions increasing with the length of stay in the intensive care unit. A class three hemorrhage where 30 to 40% of blood volume is lost with hypotension may occur from an anticoagulant bleed. Massive transfusions are defined as more than 10 units of packed red blood cells in 24 hours or replacement of the entire blood volume in 24 hours, a 50% replacement in three hours or greater than or equal to four red blood cell units in four hours with an ongoing need. A protocol you may see used at your institution is what's called a one-to-one-to-one ratio by volume of packed red blood cells, platelets, along with fresh frozen plasma. This ratio provides a reconstitution of blood with an hematocrit to 29%, a platelet count elevated to 88,000, and a clotting factor activity increased to 62%. However, there are concerns listed that need to be considered, including dilutional thrombocytopenia, citrate-induced hypocalcemia, hyperkalemia, or acidosis with this one-to-one-to-one ratio. This slide outlines whole blood products that are prepared for, from a blood transfusion center. Whole blood is separated into packed red blood cells and platelet-rich plasma. From platelet-rich plasma, plasma including FFP, which contains albumin and coagulation factors, and prothrombin complex concentrate, or activated prothrombin complex concentrate, and immunoglobulins, and various immune globulins, are separated along with platelets. Let's look at fresh frozen plasma. Fresh frozen plasma is prepared from fresh whole blood or from plasma apheresis. Please keep in mind that fresh frozen plasma is frozen within eight hours, so you have to wait approximately 30 to 45 minutes because of the need for thawing. Fresh frozen plasma is diluted by citrate solution, which is variable from unit to unit, which means that there is variability between the units with the potential for inadequate reversal of anticoagulation unless large volumes are used. 
In a typical 10 to 20 mil per kilo dose of fresh frozen plasma, this would result in more than one liter of fluid administration. In at least one study, 30 mils per kilo of fresh frozen plasma was needed to bring the plasma factor levels to within normal limits. So fluid overload is a significant problem with fresh frozen plasma, especially in the elderly and in patients with underlying cardiac and or renal insufficiency. And I would encourage you to always watch for pulmonary edema with the use of fresh frozen plasma. Prothrombin complex concentrates are used as hemostatic agents to replace vitamin K-dependent clotting factors of 2, 7, 9, and 10. They are depleted by the vitamin K therapy. Product packaging is based on factor 9 complex. What does this mean? Products may have different comp compositions such as three factors with factors 2, 9, and 10, and four factors with factors 2, 9, 10, and 7, or activated PCC with factors 2, 9, and 10, and activated factor 7. Some may have varying concentrations of protein C or protein S, and some contain heparin. In comparison of fresh frozen plasma versus prothrombin complex concentrates, PCC is selected based on the dependence on the three or four coagulation factors, including factor 7 or 7A and factor 4 PCC products. These reverse the INR in time to achieve the goal INR over FFP. In addition, patients given FFP have almost two liters more fluid to achieve the goal INR. A goal to think about, though, is an INR and plasma factor levels are inversely related, so the higher the INR, the more factor replacement is needed for adequate reversal. This is why the European and American guidelines recommend PCC for anticoagulation reversal in patients with life-threatening bleeds from vitamin K antagonists. PCCs provide quicker correction of INR and improved bleeding control. Here's a partial listing of prothrombin complex concentrate products available in Europe and in the United States. Until recently, a clear distinction is that only three-factor PCCs were available in the U.S. It should be noted that all these products are indicated for prevention or control in hemophilia B patients, so use for oral anticoagulant reversal is considered off-label. PCCs are supplied as powder and diluent, which can, must be concentrated before use, these products differ, as you can see, by, the, by concentration of factors, but generally, the dose is calculated from the patient's body weight based on the units of factor 9. The doses are usually around 25 to 50 units per kilo from pretreatment INRs, ranging from 2 to 4 and 4 to 6, respectively. INRs are re reduced usually within 30 minutes of PCC administration. Cost-phaser fresh frozen plasma over prothrombin complex concentrate, but this is overshadowed by much higher volumes and greater risks. PCC is also preferred because of a wide variety of viral pathogens, including hepatitis A, B, and C, herpes simplex virus 1, influenza viruses, and paraviruses are inactivated or removed. Whereas FFP can cause transfusion-related acute lung injury called triale, a major cause of death after transfusion via an antigen-antibody re reaction or neutrophil priming event and then activated. Levy and all conducted an open-label, single-center, parallel group study comparing the effects of three-factor versus four-factor PCC at 50 units per kilo and 35 healthy volunteers. After receiving rivaroxaban 20 milligrams twice a day to obtain a PT prolongation of approximately 18 seconds, volunteers were randomized to receive one of the two treatments, or saline, four hours after the AM dose of rivaroxaban on day five. The effects were measured by a change in prothrombin time and thrombin generation. Here are the results. Within 30 minutes, four-factor PCC reduced the mean prothrombin time by 2.5 to 3.5 seconds, whereas the three-factor PCC produced only a one-second reduction. This study suggests that prothrombin complex concentrates results are dependent on the amount of procoagulant components present in each product. Kcentra is the first available four-factor 
prothrombin complex concentrate in the United States. It is indicated for urgent reversal of acquired coagulation factor deficiency induced by vitamin K antagonist therapy in adults with acute major bleeding or need for urgent surgery or other invasive procedure. The agent is only for IV use and comes as a lyophilized powder. It is reconstituted with 20 mLs diluent provided by the manufacturer and costs approximately four to five thousand dollars depending on the dose. It does not need to be thawed and can be infused over 20 to 30 minutes. Doses is based on the pretreatment presenting INR and is dosed by units per kilo of total body weight, but not to exceed a total body weight of 100 kilos. Major adverse events are headache, GI effects, and some hypotension. A black box warning has also been issued for case syndrome. This agent upon reversal of vitamin K antagonist can result in fatal as well as non-fatal arterial and venous thrombosis events, the very reason that a VKA antagonist was prescribed to prevent a clot in the first place. Vital signs should be monitored during the infusion. It is contraindicated in patients with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIP because it contains heparin. There is limited clinical data to the use of four-factor PCC in the management of dabigatron-associated bleeding. A study by Marlowe et al. crossed over 10 healthy adult males ex vivo with either four-factor PCC, PCC at a dose of 25 units per kilo versus 80 units per kilo of factor VIII inhibitor bypassing activity, or FIVA, which is indicated for the use of hemophilia A and B patients for control and prevention of bleeding episodes, versus the third crossover arm of recombinant factor VII activated at 120 micrograms per kilo. PCC increased endogenous thrombin potential AUC, or area under the curve, and increased peak thrombin generation. There is also limited clinical data to the use of four-factor PCC in the management of factor 10A bleeding. Again, a study by Marlowe et al. crossed over 10 healthy adult males ex vivo with either factor 4 PCC at, PCC at 25 units per kilo versus 80 units per kilo of factor 8 inhibitor bypassing activity, or the third crossover was the recombinant factor 7A activated at 120 micrograms per kilo. PCC increased endogenous thrombopotential AUC and partially corrected the peak thrombin generation. Neither of these studies should be considered definitive for using PCC in, fact, in either 2 or 10A inhibitors. They do not remove the DOAC. They are associated with the risk of thrombosis, and as we will show you, more specific antidotes have been developed to reverse DOAC bleeding. In summary, though, how should we use the procedures and products presented to date to reverse DOAC-induced anticoagulation resulting in acute major bleeding? Activated charcoal can be used with very recent overdose, probably no more than four hours with direct thrombin inhibitors or 10A inhibitors. Hemodialysis can be used for the Bigatron with only data showing approximately 70% removal at four hours. Since rivaroxaban and pixaban are highly protein bound, it is unlikely that they can be removed by hemodialysis. In direct comparisons, FFP is inferior to PCC and should not be used. Recombinant factor 7A activated has been studied in animal models and cannot be recommended at this time. Based on the data I have shown you, four-factor PCC is superior to three-factor PCC and is preferred. Four-factor PCC should be used in the absence of other reversal agents that I'm going to discuss with you now. Idarucizumab, or trademarked name of Praxbind, is a humanized monoclonal antibody fragment derived from an IgG1 isotope molecule whose target is dabigatron major bleed. It has an affinity for dabigatron that's 350 times as high as thrombin. Consequently, idarucizumab binds free and thrombin-bound dabigatron and neutralizes its activity. It does not bind other thrombin substrates. Idarucizumab is available in 2.5 gram vials and is given as two consecutive infusions. Additional infusions may be necessary to reverse a dabigatron-induced anticoagulation when excessively high concentrations are present but it should be noted that effectiveness and or safety of repeat doses post the original two infusions have not been established. 
In patients, the most frequent reported adverse effects, which were greater than 5%, were hypokalemia, delirium, constipation, pyrexia, and headache. Caution must be exercised in patients with hereditary fructose intolerance due to 4-gram sorbitol excipient, which is in the product. A multicenter prospective open-label study was conducted to determine whether 5 grams of idarucizumab would be able to reverse the anticoagulant effect of dabigatron in two groups of patients, group A, uncontrolled bleeding, and group B, about to undergo an urgent procedure. The primary endpoint was the maximum percentage reversal of the anticoagulant effect of idarucizumab on the basis of diluted thrombin time requiring clotting time. Secondary endpoints included the restoration of hemostasis and safety measures. There were 319 patients in Group A, with 97 suffering intracranial bleed, 135 a GI bleed, and 87 suffering a non-GI or non-intracranial hemorrhage bleed. 82% had a major life-threatening bleed, 6% minor, and in 2% the bleed could not be ascertained. The International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis Bleeding Severity was determined upon patient enrollment. As you can see, 92% had a major or life-threatening bleed. In Group B, the indications for surgery or procedures were outlined on this slide. The majority of indications for procedures were acute abdominal or bone fracture procedures. The results of Group A and Group B are shown on this slide. Group A on the left, Group B on the right. Activated partial thromboplastin time is plotted against time post-initiation of idarucizumab. The median maximal percentage reversal of dabigatron was 100% in both groups. In Group A, the median time cessation of bleeding was 2.5 hours. In Group B, the median time cessation of bleeding was 1.6 hours. This slide shows the reinitiation of antithrombotic therapy and death in group A and group B. The median time to restart anticoagulation therapy was 72% in those who restarted and was 5.3 days in group A and, and in group B where 90% were restarted was 1.2 days. Not shown in this slide, but important to be noted that at 90 days, thrombotic events had occurred in 6.3% in group, group A and 7.4% in Group B. The mortality rate was approximately 12% at 30 days and 19% at 90 days in both groups. The takeaway here is that idarucizumab rapidly, consistently, and safely reversed the anticoagulant effect of dabigatron. Adexa-alpha, or the trade name Adexa, is a recombinant modified human factor 10A protein developed as a universal antidote to reverse the anticoagulant effects of direct or indirect factor 10A inhibitors. Using factor 10A as a template, modifications were made in three regions to generate the recombinant antidote. The first is the deletion of a 34 residue fragment that contains 11 gamma carboxy acid residues. Second, replacement of the activation peptide to form a linker that connects the light chain to the heavy chain. And three, mutation of the active site therine to alanine. These modifications mean that adexanet alpha is unable to cleave and activate prothrombin and cannot assemble into the prothrombin complex. The decoy protein binds to apixaban, betrixaban, adoxaban, and rivaroxaban with high affinity similar to that seen with endogenous factor 10A. The drug is rapidly eliminated with a terminal ha elimination half-life of five to seven hours. Pharmacokinetics are not affected by age. Drug has been evaluated in two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase two trials. Both trials enrolled healthy volunteers aged 50 to 75 years of age. In Anexa A, 64 healthy volunteers were administered a Pixaban, 5 milligrams BID for three to five days. In Anexa R, 80 healthy volunteers received Rivaroxaban, 20 milligrams daily for four days. In Anexa A, healthy volunteers were administered a Dexanet Alpha 400 milligrams IV bolus, followed by continuous infusion of 4 milligrams per minute for two hours. In Anexa R, the IV bolus was 800 milligrams, followed by 8 milligrams per minute for 120 hours. Adexanet Alpha significantly reduced the anti-factor 10A activity from baseline in both Anexa A and Anexa R within two to five minutes 
of administration and was sustained over a two-hour infusion time. Adexanet-alpha was well-tolerated in both trials. If patients present more than seven hours post-dose of apixaban, they received a bolus of 400 milligrams and a two-hour infusion of 480 milligrams. For patients who had taken anoxapirin, edoxaban, or rivaroxaban, seven hours or less, the bolus dose was 800 milligrams and the infusion dose was 960 milligrams. These doses were selected based on rapid reversal of 80% or more of anti-factor 10A activity from previous studies. Analysis of the study included safety for all patients that received adexanet alpha. The safety analysis excluded patients with a baseline anti-factor 10A activity of less than 75 nanograms per ml. This cutoff level had resulted in an inhibition and thrombin generation of only 30 to 35% in phase two trials. The analysis I will show you over the next few slides includes all patients as of October 10, 2017, and includes 227 total patients. The baseline characteristics of the study population are shown in this slide. Overall, the interim population is an elderly population, approximately equal in gender, with overall good renal function. Only 10% had a creatinine clearance of less than 30% who were primarily prescribed the factor 10A inhibitor for atrial fibrillation. Many patients had medical conditions rendering them predisposed to atrial fibrillation or VTE. The study population included 105 patients presenting with apixaban, 75 with rivaroxaban, and 16 patients with anoxapurin. The initial presentation was most often an intracranial bleed in approximately 60% with 30% suffering a GI bleed. After bolus administration, the median anti-10A activity decreased by 88% amongst those patients receiving rivaroxaban. These levels remained the same during the two-hour infusion. Four hours after the end of infusion, the relative decrease was 60%. After bolus administration, the median anti-10A activity decreased by 91% in those patients who had received apixaban. These levels again remain the same during the two-hour infusion, and four hours after the end of infusion, the relative decrease was 35%. Finally, for anoxapirin, the relative median 10A, anti-10A activity decreased by 75%. These levels remain the same again during the two-hour infusion, and four hours after the end of infusion, the relative decrease was 52%. Safety was assessed by the number of thrombotic events from days 3 through 30 after the adexanet alpha infusion. There were six events, 2.6% at three days, and 24 events at 30 days. Anticoagulation was restarted in 57% of the patients by 30 days. Importantly, anticoagulation was restarted in only nine patients before a thrombotic event occurred. 27%, or 12% of the patients enrolled in the study died. 11% of those were cardiovascular related. In a pooled analysis of clinical trials, including healthy volunteers and patients, the only adverse effect occurring in a higher incidence in adexanet alpha than placebo was infusion related reactions, which were mild to moderate in intensity and were generally manageable without treatment. Immunogenicity was measured by anti adexanet alpha antibodies, which occurred in 17%, but all those 70% had low titers. 6% of adexanet 4, 6% of anexa 4 patients developed anti adexanet alpha antibodies within 30 days of treatment, but none with developing neutralizing antibodies. Antibodies with cross-reactivity to factor 10 or factor 10A have not been detected in any single subject to date. Thrombotic events were graphically shown as all events on the left graph and events after restart of anticoagulation on the right graph. All events occurred throughout the follow-up period in a relative linear manner without evidence of time set to restart of anticoagulation. This slide graphically shows the two dosing regimens of adexanet alpha specific to the factor 10A inhibitors. Adexanet alpha dosing is based on the time since factor 10A inhibitor, with eight hours being the cutoff time and a specific DOAC dose. Thereby, use either a low or high dose regimen of the initial bolus and follow-up infusion. 
Based on these regimens, the cost of the agent could vary between approximately 30,000 and 58,000 based on 3,300 3, per 100 milligram vial. Bleeding is a complication of anticoagulation therapy with annual bleeding rates ranging between 2 to 5% for major bleeds, 0.5 to 1% for fatal bleeding, and 0.2 to 0.4% for intracranial bleeding. On the other hand, resuming oral anticoagulant therapy after a potentially life-threatening bleed is risky and involves high anxiety between clinicians and patients trying to decide whether and when to resume oral anticoagulation to prevent the thrombotic event or to discontinue therapy to reduce the risk of further bleeding. I give credit to my colleague Dan Witt, who practices at the University of Utah for this work. Results from several studies suggest that most patients with anticoagulation-based gastrointestinal bleeds should resume anticoagulation around two weeks. This may be the best time event balance between bleed recurrence, reducing the risk of thromboembolic event, and mortality risk. Consideration should be given also to starting a PPI or histamine 2 receptor antagonist at least initially after restarting the DOAS. Anticoagulation therapy increases the risk of intracranial hemorrhage by 10 to 15 fold. There is no definitive study to determine when to restart oral anticoagulant therapy in a patient who has survived an intracranial hemorrhage. There's also no data on a DOAC restart. There is, however, some work with vitamin K antagonists. Restarting an oral anticoagulant should be done in patients with a mechanical valve, independent of whether the intracranial hemorrhage occurs deep or in the lobar brain location. Studies also suggest that restarting oral anticoagulation lowers mortality and rates of thrombosis. So restarting an oral anticoagulant should probably be our default plan. This table summarizes patient characteristics for resumption of oral anticoagulation. This table is set up as dark green for a positive characteristic to resume oral anticoagulation, lighter green that suggests some thought should be exercised before starting, yellow meaning caution in restarting, and red do not restart the oral anticoagulant. Green is noted when there is a known correctable source, such as a mechanical heart valve, idiopathic recurrent VTE history, and atrial fibrillation with a prior history of a cardiovascular event, or a high CHADS-2 VASC risk score. Do not restart oral anticoagulation therapy in patients with an unknown source of the bleed, a lobar intracranial hemorrhage location with MRI evidence of microbleeding, a provoked VTE, and in a patient who has completed three months of therapy, atrial fibrillation and no additional CBA risk factors, and other characteristics including renal failure, non-adherence, and limited life expectancy. Let's turn now and present some thoughts on objective number three, which is formulate comprehensive care strategies for management of patients at risk for DOAC-related bleeding. The American Academy of Family Physicians provides a definitive definition of comprehensive care management as the practice of concurrent prevention and management of multiple physical and emotional health problems of a patient over time in relationship to their family, life events, and the patient's environment. Comprehensive care management should include VTE care for the individual plus a more holistic approach, which includes prevention, support services such as staffing, management and infrastructure, which supports the VTE patient outside the health service. CCM is a team-based approach to patients with VTE. This slide provides a listing of more holistic approach from the Kaiser Family Foundation by considering and engaging the patient across one, whether they have an economic stability for VTE treatment. Two, what is their physical environment for transportation to VTE appointments and laboratory measurements. And three, their health literacy understanding, access to food and what types of common foods consumed, and community and health care system coverage. The American Society of Hematology guidelines provide VTE practical recommendations that can be applied to the social determinants of health. It is very important that VTE patients are provided a structured patient education about their VTE event. This should include drug and dose recommendations, taking into consideration the patient's economic status, potential drug interactions with food, especially with vitamin K antagonists. The clinician should also understand the physical environment that will allow the patient to attend laboratory monitoring 
of their anticoagulant response. Medication adherence may be related to community and or social issues. Anticoagulant resumption following a bleed must be considered in the context of several factors. Why is determining the social determinants of health important in VTE? Because many patients suffer emotional harms after having a VTE event. Work from the University of Utah shows that as many as 1 to 1.3 per 10 patients may have anxiety and or depression associated with a VTE event. The, these emotional harms may include a high fear of another clot, poor health locus of control, and barriers to care, including economic transportation or social support issues. The final objective is to discuss formulary and policy considerations for DOAC reversal agents. The prompt availability of DOAC reversal agents in urgent situations is critical. Institutional policies and procedures with standardized order sets clinical pathways, and clinical decision support tools for four-factor PCC, idarucizumab, and adexanet alpha should be developed and available for urgent or emergent oral anticoagulant bleeds. Remember, as many as 2.2-5% of patients may have a major bleed when taking an oral anticoagulant. In conclusion, recommendations for Factor 2 and Factor 10A DOAC reversal agents are listed on this slide based on current studies and understanding. For dabigatron, idarucizumab should be the agent of choice followed by four-factor PCC or activated PCC. For adoxaban, administer four-factor PCC. For apixaban and rivaroxaban, adexanet alpha is the agent of choice. There is no established way to reverse the anticoagulant effects of batrixaban. In a life-threatening situation, adexanet alpha or four-factor PCC could be tried. Remember, the anticoagulant effect would be expected to last 72 hours with atrexaban. Universally, consider activated charcoal for recent ingestions within two to four hours associated with major bleeds. Hello, and welcome everyone to the live question and answer session for today's discussion, Novel DOAC Reversal Strategies, Update on Best Practices. My name is Randy Fugit, and I'm an internal medicine infectious diseases specialist at the Denver VA Medical Center, as well as a clinical associate professor at the University of Colorado in Denver, Colorado. And I'll be your moderator to today's uh, question and answer session. I'm joined also today by Dr. Paul Dobish, who is professor of pharmacy practice and science at College of Pharmacy, University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And of course, our presenter, Dr. Munger, is along and who will be answering your questions as well today. So with that, let's go ahead and get started with our first question. I've got quite a few questions already lined up. This is wonderful. So our first question, uh, Dr. Munger, let me throw this one at you. How soon are bleeding events from DOACs discovered clinically? So I think that's an excellent question. The um, timing can be anywhere from the first dose onward. And I would take you back to what we presented um, about in the first third of my presentation, and that is risk factors for bleeding during oral anticoagulant therapy. And if you look across the four domains that I gave you of patient demographics, concomitant diseases, concomitant drugs, and other risk factors, if you had a uh, number of these, even with the first dose, you could certainly bleed. If you were a female sex of advanced age with a history of a bleed before or with ethanol abuse, were taking an antiplatelet or non-steroidal or SSRI or SNRI, all of those would predispose to you bleeding. And so even with the first dose, someone could actually have a DOAC bleed. Wonderful, wonderful comment. Um, yeah. Do you have any comments? Absolutely. Yes, please do. Yeah, I think Dr. Munger is spot on there. Uh, you know, really, patients who have a propensity to bleed, will they'll bleed early. What we see in a number of the studies is that, you know, when you look at the major bleeding, that most of the patients who, are, who have the major risk factors to bleed, they're going to have their bleed. It's going to be recognized because of their basically their, uh, their phenotype. And so they're going to have, you know, those are the ones that have the bleeding events. And, and, and then afterwards, there really isn't a whole lot. It also differs a little bit by the type of bleed. So things like GI bleeds, like I said, those risk factors, you're going to see those usually earlier on in therapy. 
where as you look at the clinical data, things like uh, intracranial bleeds are usually because of some type of trauma, and those can happen obviously any time. Uh, there's no way to predict those. Wonderful. Thank you. Very insightful answers. Uh, Dr. Munger, I think this one's for you. Uh, do you recommend a Pixaban for dialysis patients? Uh, the all of the drugs, um, all of the drugs can be uh, can be used with dialysis. However, really, what your selection of which drug for dialysis would be used? Remember that that's going to take time to set up. It's going to be expensive, although in relationship to a Nexa, that you could make that argument that it's about the same. But the timing of that, I would suggest, is downstream from what I would use because we now have re reversal agents that will work much quicker and in many of these cases are cheaper than would be dialysis. Great. Thank you. Randy? Yeah. Do you have a yeah, comment? Yeah, uh, so it's interesting. So when I heard the when I heard the question, I was wondering if the uh, the questionnaire was going in a different direction. You know, so uh, you know, obviously dialysis, as Dr. Munger said, is extent is extensive to set up. It's not really a reversal strategy per se, unless you've got significant renal dysfunction and, and maybe dabigatran or something else that's uh, less protein bound. But you know, if they're talking clinically, like for anticoagulation of a patient, would you prefer a pixaban and I think there's a lot of misinformation out there that there's this belief that somehow apixaban is the safest renal drug. Um, realize that what's in the FDA label is five milligrams twice a day. There's actually clinical studies showing a cumulative dosing that that's probably harmful, but we don't know. Realize that the exact same, you know, these data, to get wording in your label, all you need is an eight-patient single-dose kinetic step. That's all it takes. And so that's all the apixaban people have done. And, that's, and realize that rivaroxaban, 15 milligrams, has the same exact data. Uh, so this, you know, if people think that there's more evidence with the Pixaban in renal disease, I would argue there isn't. Uh, Rivaroxaban has the same amount of data. Um, it doesn't seem to get discussed as much, but there's equal efficacy. There's equal, I should say, we don't know about efficacy or safety, but there's equal similar pharmacokinetic data in both of those agents. Um, and so it is a, patients with dialysis that need anticoagulation are quite a conundrum. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Okay, back to you again, Dr. Dobish. Are you considering fixed-dose four-factor PCC for DOACs? Why or why not? Sure. So I'm actually not a, a, a you know, I don't use, uh, I don't advocate using PCCs for DOAC reversal, period. You, you have to think about what, you know, when you're, if that's what you're going to do, right, and really I think we're talking about 10A inhibitor, like a Pixaban or a Rivaroxaban or something like that. You know, the data with the PCCs is extremely limited. There are no prospective studies that have been evaluated in patients who have taken the drug within 12 hours that were basically where patients were, you know, decided that, you know, all right, we're going to give you, we're going to watch what happens, you know, get the drug. There are two retrospective, there are two prospective studies out there. One looked at patients, though, they were average of 18 hours post-dose. And they basically, they didn't start looking at that until they actually after got the drug, so the decision was already made, so there's a selection bias there. And so, you know, and then if you look at the patients, the other study, which had patients who got the drug, you know, a little bit closer, their, effic their hemostatic efficacy is only in the 60% range. So the data is extremely limited, and we're talking about both of these studies are collectively less than 100 patients each. Uh, and when you've got Indexa, which is an FDA-approved agent, Proven hemostatic efficacy, proven to reduce anti-10A, none of that exists with PCCs. So I'm not sure the discussion should be fixed dose or weight-based dose. The, the discussion should be what is the appropriate management of major bleeding, life-threatening bleeding in patients who get 10A inhibitors. And I, and I, I think you're hard-pressed to say that there's efficacy data to, or to support the use of a PCC in that setting. Well, let me follow up let with that question add. with you, Dr. Yeah, Dudovich, real quick. Yes, sir. Yeah, let me just add one part to that. The the other part we have no idea is if you're going to start off with a four-factor PCC and you do not stop the bleeding, we have no we have no data on what either benefit or safety concerns are of adding a dexinant onto a four-factor PCC. So I think if you're going to do that, as, as Dr. Dobrish has just said, with very, very limited data, 
is you're probably not doing the be- doing that in the best interest of the patient. Agreed. Thank you. No, appreciate your extra comment. But continuing on with that question, so this is along the same lines, Dr. Dovish. Recently, literature has suggested sure. a lower dosing strategy when using Kacentra at a dose of 25 mics per kilogram for life-threatening bleeding. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, so there, you know, there. The data is, you know, so the data really reflects around the use of warfarin. Um, and so basically using case sensitive to reduce warfarin, so you use 50 units per K, 25 units per K. I think the 25 units per kilogram dose has been suggested as possibly safer because there's the thought that there could be some rebound effect uh, when you took a look at things like uh, endogenous thrombin potential. Um, but realize that most of the time in the guidelines that you're going to see, because where the most of the evidence is with the 50 units per kilo, and you know I'm I'm kind of of the attitude of treat or don't treat. But you know in these life-threatening situations, I'm not sure it's a place that skimp, skipping around and trying to do half those stuff is where we want to go. I understand that it does get done some places, um, but it, it's not what we advocate at our institution. Excellent. Okay, Dr. Munger, actually I have uh, someone here who, first of all, wanted to thank you for a very insightful talk on the DOAX, but uh, they're curious if patient uh, who receives PCC or Andexa and have a thrombotic event within two weeks without resuming the DOAC yet, should PCC Andexa be redosed? So the, in the Andexa 4 study, Clearly, had a ma- major percent of the patients that were redosed. The best literature that has been put together on a compilation across the world of the world's literature, as well as some literature that has been done in both Denver and Salt Lake City, is from from Dan Witt. The restarting of a DOAC should probably be done, especially with a GI bleed, within four weeks. You can combine that. With a uh, with an agent that would help block um, either histamine or block uh, gastric acid secretion in those patients, such as a PTI, along with restarting the DOAC within two weeks. For an intracranial bleed, we've had this question often over the over the period of time that we've been doing these presentations. The intracranial bleed, the the data, as you would suspect, is much more limited. We, I think between Dr. Dobish and I would say that it's certainly, you should be considering it at two weeks and by four weeks, and certainly by three months at the very latest, you should be restarting the DOAC. And remember, you're trying to balance the difference between the reason you had the DOAC in the first place, which is the thrombogenic potential leading to a clot versus the fact that you've already had a bleed. And this is a difficult, especially with an intracranial bleed, a very difficult clinical decision to make and needs to be done not only in the context of the data that you have on the patient, but probably with the patient having input here. I would agree with that, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Dobish, uh, why is Andexanet not approved for reversal of adoxaban or anoxaparin? Uh, good question. It really, it really goes back to uh, understanding of how the drug actually initially got approved. So, actually, the initial data for approval is based on the Anexa R, which was in Anexa A studies, and that's with rivaroxaban and apixaban respectively. And that was actually studies of reversal of the anti-10A activity in healthy volunteers. Uh, and so that's actually the bulk of the data that led to the approval with rivaroxaban and apixaban. It also looked at the initial slice, which was less than 100 patients, of an exa 4 And remember, at that time, you know, very almost, I think there were, there were I don't think there were any adoxaban patients enrolled and maybe three anoxaparin patients enrolled in the study at that time. So when the drug actually went for approval over a year ago, um, that's actually the data that they had, you know, completed and submitted to the FDA. So there really, you know, there is some abstract data with uh, some data, as you say, that's been presented in abstracts about re- reversal of adoxaban, reversal of even patrixaban, reversal of anoxaparin, but not nearly to the extent that there was with rivaroxaban and, and apixaban. So it's really the differences in the, in the, the number of patients uh, and the amount of evidence available. 
Now, whether now, but, you know, realize that the, inox, the data with anoxaparin, even in the Anexa 4 study now that's completed, is still limited, uh, as well as adoxaban. Um, you know, some people don't even know this, but, like, the Anexa 4 study is actually still enrolling patients in Germany, even yeah. though the final paper's been done, uh, to try to continue. They use a fair amount of adoxaban in Germany and trying to increase, actually, the adoxaban uh, experience with the agent. So, you know, uh, continuing to go down that route uh, of gaining more information. Uh, I will tell you this, um, and this is obviously off-label, but if you did have a patient who was getting adoxaban and had a major bleed, regardless of the timing of the dose, uh, or at least, you know, I, I think you're going to be looking, because the uh, volume of distribution of adoxaban is five-fold, that, let's say, of a pixaban, uh, and more than double that of rivaroxaban, you're going to probably be leaking. I would I would use the high dose strategy in those patients if I had to reverse adoxaban. Excellent, wonderful insight. Do you so, have anything to so add, Doctor Munger? Yeah, I think that first of all, I completely agree with what Doctor Dobish just said. The other agent that probably needs to be talked about in this setting is the newer uh, kid on the block, and that's vitrixaban, and Vitrixaban, I think because of its longer half-life, that becomes a major part of your decision process if you're going to use a Nexa in this, in this setting. Again, that's off-label, but with I think what Dr. Dobish is saying and what I'm reflecting also is the fact that if you have a major bleed, especially an intracranial bleed, uh, and a Nexa is you have access to a Nexa, with either a doxaban or vitrexaban, I think it's worth a shot to save that person's life. Okay, wonderful. And I just want to remind our audience, uh, if you do have a question, please type in the chat box in the lower left hand of your screen so that we can make sure that uh, Dr. Munger and Dr. Dobish will be answer able to answer your questions. So our next question is, are there any patient situations where restarting the DOAC would be sooner than two weeks after a major bleed? How often is Andexanet Alpha used within your facility? We don't currently have it at our community hospital. Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Munger. Well, we we sir, we have it on formulary. We have not used it very often. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I think the exact numbers are probably less than 10 right. um, total. What was the first part of the question again, Randy? If you don't well, the first question is, no, no problem. Um, are there any patient situations where restarting the DOAC would be yeah. sooner than two weeks after a major bleed? So they did make the so, issue here that this so, is a significant bleed. Yeah, so the issue here is, do we have any prospective data here? And we do not have any prospective data. We are relying on either case reports, retrospective data, or case-type series that have been collected around the world. And what you're looking for then is, can we find a sweet spot or a sweet timing uh, point? And I think that's what Dr. Witt's article talks about, and the, their suggestion for a GI bleed is that sweet spot is around two weeks. That doesn't mean that you can't start the DOAC sooner than two weeks. It just means that in the case, the amount of data we have now, two weeks seems to be the best timing of that. So I hope, I hope that answers. And in an intracranial bleed, again, I think there are many more factors that have to be decided there. Where was the bleed? Was it extent? Did it extend? Is it still extending? And the other cases are, what is the risk for another thrombogenic event in that particular patient? And then, as I said before, the importance of having the patient and potentially the patient's family have a role in the decision of when we're going to restart or if they will allow a restart of the DOAC again is, uh, is important uh, in all these considerations when it comes to an intracranial bleed. Thank you, Dr. Dobish. Any final comments on that? Yeah, I think uh, I would, again, Dr. Munger says it's completely spot on. I think part of it has to do with what the the final curative, you know, uh, mechanism is. You know, like, if, you know, most bleeding, is either, it, it's got a clot. So, you mean, and if not, you've got to cauterize it, stitch it, pressure it, something. So, something has to happen. So, you know, obviously, we talk a lot about the GI bleeds, intracranial bleeds. These are the most significant, as well as GI being fairly common. But I think you could see earlier start times if something patients had, uh, 
you know, subcutaneous bleeds, possibly bleeds from trauma that was able to be, you know, adequately sutured and, and, and managed surgically. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think there's, there's opportunities there. But like Dr. Munger said, there's nothing prospectively to guide us. Um, you know, I had the privilege of being on the, the uh, ACC uh, writing committee for the oral anticoagulation reversal position paper. And one of the things we, we, we juggled was should we, should we address this issue of restarting anticoagulation? Is that part of the paper or not? We finally decided, yeah, we'll put it in there. And it ended up being the hardest part of the paper to write because the data is so is is weak um and so you know i if you're looking for the randomized controlled trial to say this is what you do you're going to and you're waiting for that to happen you're probably going to probably die disappointed um so we have to like i've said before if you don't have the data you want you use the data you have and so i think it kind of depends upon like dr munger said the clinical scenario uh the location of the bleed the treatment strategy and of course patient preference is critically important Wonderful. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for such insightful answers. And uh, with that, it's time to wrap up the session. I certainly want to thank our significant key opinion leaders in the area of DOAC therapy, Dr. Mark Munger and Dr. Paul Dobish, for providing, like I said, just a significantly insightful discussion today. And I want to thank you, all of our participants, for such great questions and really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule today to spend with us. And with that, at the conclusion of this presentation, you're going to be directed back to the landing page to complete the post-test and evaluation so that you can obtain your credit. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today.